0: Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring on a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Walls, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to the Healthcare Law Today blog, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app please visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Jennifer Rathburn, who will be talking about practical and approachable steps that you, our listeners, can take to tune up your cybersecurity programs. Jennifer, why don't you introduce yourself
1: and our guest? Thanks, Judy. Hi, my name is Jen Rathburn and I'm a partner at Foley & Lardner. In light of the increase in ransomware and new security vulnerabilities from working from home, as well as recent publicized cases about cyber attacks related to the attempted theft of COVID-19 vaccines and studies, we really wanted to do this podcast to help you focus on what needs to be done to protect your organization. With me today, I have Brian Ressler, who's a vice president for engagement at Stroh's Friedberg to discuss some practical steps to tune up your cybersecurity program. Brian, welcome. Thanks, Jen. I think where we first want to start out is just, you know, why now? Why now should we do a podcast that's focused on healthcare? I teed it up a little bit because as you and I both know, we've seen a rampant increase of cyber attacks, in in particular um, focusing on ransomware. But I would love to just get your, you know, general overview thoughts of really why now? Um, Jen, so
2: to start with, uh, there's a couple things I'd like to highlight, but specifically focusing on healthcare. Um, I think in any capacity, healthcare is always a target for cybercrime, regardless of what's going on in the outside world. Um, And there's a myriad reasons for that, uh, but I'd like to highlight two that I think are particularly relevant. One is from a threat actor standpoint, there's a perception that there's a significant amount of financial assets involved in the healthcare industry and that's true regardless of the actual size of that business, its role, and any assets that it has. So, whether you're a major hospital, research center, or a drug or equipment manufacturer, or perhaps just a small local clinic or nonprofit to aid professionals, the belief is there's a significant amount of money passing through. And while threat actors often act to cause disruption and other sorts of mayhem, Predominantly, what they're doing this for is for uh, a means of earning a living. Essentially, it's their full-time job and they're trying to earn money. So they target that industry and the kinds of industries that will bring them the most uh, bang for the buck, if you will. That makes sense. And there's a perception uh, as well that urgency is involved with healthcare. And and this is funny because it plays both on public perception and business perception to the benefits and to the leverage of their threat actors. From a threat actor standpoint, um, they recognize that the public needs healthcare and it's it's an urgent need. And when you have to have it, you need to have it. As well, there's always the business need that a business needs to be operable at any given moment. Um, But particularly for healthcare, it's not the kind of business that can afford to take perhaps two weeks of downtime. And no business certainly in any circumstance wants to have that. But for healthcare, the understanding is you have to be able to provide that need um, as soon as the need presents itself that gives the threat actor leverage um, in a variety of attacks. But for example, focusing on ransomware matters, if a hospital's systems are encrypted and they can't provide care for their patients, that is a significant amount of leverage for a threat actor to try to extort money from that hospital, um, who otherwise if in a different industry might be able to spend a week or two rebuilding their systems and avoid paying that ransom.
1: Yeah, and on that note, you know, we have seen many ransomware attacks, um, you know, upon hospitals, health systems, providers, et cetera. And a few years back, um, the Office for Civil Rights did release some guidance related to how to prepare for and respond to ransomware attacks, as well as how you do the breach analysis. Um, So ransomware has been something that has been around for several years. But as you and I both know, because we work in the business every day, we have certainly seen an uptick.
2: Absolutely. And and one of the problems with the uptick is the pat- current pandemic. And there's a number of factors that I think a any business needs to pay attention to during this time, but particularly healthcare uh, is especially vulnerable. Uh, so first I'd focus on the fact that many more employees are working remotely than ever before. Uh, and that is a problem for a couple levels. One, it gives the threat actors a lot more surface area to attack. Uh, when you have your employees working in one building together, Uh, the IT manager has to just worry about the people in that building and to more closely monitor and enforce network policies. When we have the transition to teleworking and if your business is not prepared to do that and you've had to make adjustments, oftentimes there's shortcuts, there's things overlooked. Uh, People are allowed more access privileges than they should have. And that can lead to a compromise of those accounts and giving a threat actor those leg up on the system. For example, giving them administrative privileges when they shouldn't have it. Uh, So that's one stress. But there's also increased financial strains. Um, And unfortunately, we've heard too much of businesses going under and not being able to sustain or transition their business during the pandemic. But even in a best case scenario, uh, and especially for businesses involved in healthcare, there's reduced revenue, there's increased operating costs to adjust to safety concerns. Um, When do you meet patients? How do you treat them? If it's just internal employees, can they all work in one location? Uh, What steps do you have to take uh, to keep everybody safe? But even if you've done all that, you have to consider your third party vendors and suppliers. What businesses do you engage with and what steps are they taking? Uh, And it may be that while your system is pretty safe and secure, the people you deal with are struggling and they're having problems with their systems. So that also creates uh, further stress on your own business and your own ability to operate safely on this environment. And finally, I would note that the increase in cybercrime that we've seen lately has been largely due to the pandemic. There's been a number of uh, statements issued by the FBI and other law enforcement entities uh, warning businesses that attacks such as business email compromise and fraud are on the rise. Uh, Ransomware attacks are on the rise. And we're even finding increases in attempted theft of confidential or trade secret information. I would like to highlight, if some of that is not clear enough, that just a few weeks ago, the Department of Justice uh, issued some, a notification that on July 21st, 2020, they issued charges against two Chinese hackers with the Ministry of State Security. Uh, and this was a global campaign uh, by the Chinese government to target intellectual property and confidential business information, and pointedly, including COVID 19 vaccination research and testing. Um, So you can see that there's a lot going on due to the pandemic. Not only are people more vulnerable, but actually the existence of the pandemic itself, people's concern about vaccination testing research is being taken advantage of at this time.
1: Yeah, you know, and that brings a lot of issues in because even though, you know, for example, a nation state actor is trying to get into steal actual IP, you know, whether that's an actual COVID vaccine or other related research and testing, but Even if they come in and they're not successful, it still causes a breach to your systems. And even if data isn't ultimately exfiltrated, underneath the HIPAA rules, it's really important for healthcare organizations to understand that potentially even that access alone could cause um, you to have a reportable data breach. So we're just really seeing an uptick in that space.
2: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we always say, try to take care of these events when skies are blue and and the seas are calm. Uh, but unfortunately you have to double down on doing that uh, during times like this that are challenging, such as the pandemic.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. So, you know, really let's get down to the bottom line. What can organizations do today to really tune up their cybersecurity program? And and really I just want to talk about some of the big quick wins they should focus on.
2: First, and I would say this at any time, um, know your network environment know your vulnerabilities and know your assets and cannot stress this enough. So for example, uh, if you're using Office 365 or some e- email service provider, turn on multi-factor authentication um, and disable legacy authentication, which would allow people to access your email system using outdated systems. Uh, another thing that I would mention is get an up-to-date network map. And this seems to be Something that you know people would think, well, of course we have one on hand, but I can't tell you the number of matters I've worked both as a prosecutor and in my current position. Uh, where you find out in a business, IT is worried about so many matters in the business that keeping track of which servers and users have been retired or rebuilt or even where they're located um, is just not available and done. So if you could start right there and just take an inventory of what you have and where it is, that will be especially helpful. If you get hit by a breach, if there is a need for an incident response, you're going to need to locate all of that anyway. And that will take precious time and resources away from getting where you really want to be, which is your system set up and your data uh, safe and secure.
1: And I would say, Brian, you know, that's a big issue just on the privacy end. You know, part of doing any sort of privacy program is really doing a data map of what type of data you have. Clearly, as a healthcare organization, you're going to have protected health information, PHI, but you could also have something called personally identifiable information that would be outside the scope of HIPAA potentially that would pick up under state law. You could also have credit card data. And, you know, clients really do struggle with doing that data map. And I guess I would say the practical approach i say is at least get big items down (laughs) figure out where the majority you know of your phi is stored or or what vendor has that phi similar to credit card data and other sensitive data because in the event of a breach you know we'll talk about it in a moment about how we work together with forensic experts but it's also i mean you as an outside forensic expert are not going to be able to tell the client what data is on those particular systems. I mean, you could, but it's really a hard process post-breach to try to figure out what types of data have been affected.
2: Absolutely, Jen. And to add to those points, um, and referring to the Department of Justice um, indictment from a few weeks ago, know where your most valuable information is, your trade secret information, confidential business and research information, know what servers uh, have that kind of information. Know what users may have access to that information as much as you can upfront. It will absolutely speed up recovery.
1: Most definitely. So what are some other tips um, other than a pure technical side?
2: Um, a real easy win is to check your list of current users, and particularly those with administrative privileges or administrators. Um, often we'll find in a system that people have retired, they left the company, servers might not be used anymore and the administrators involved with those servers aren't even uh, involved in that position anymore. And what happens is those accounts still stay on the system. And the problem is that's now a liability because that account might be able to be used now and not flag um, any kind of AV protection. It may not be flagged in your firewall. It may look like legitimate traffic when in fact that old account has now been hijacked by an attacker uh, and being used for their ends. So I would also suggest to go through on a regular basis and clear all users who no longer are with the company or your business. Make sure that people's privileges are set appropriately so they only have the authorization and the credentials that they need and particularly focus on administrative privileges.
1: That makes sense. And it's working with the HR department and the IT department to make sure that the IT department becomes aware, you know, of not only transition of different job roles, but when employees, you know, retire or terminated and leave for a new position.
2: Absolutely. Um, This next one goes back to my days as a prosecutor, but it's still true now. I would activate as much logging as possible, uh, whether in your email system, in your firewalls. Um, in your network event logs, uh, et cetera. We'll often find in an incident response, it can be a few days before uh, we come in and, and we're involved and retained. And believe it or not, sometimes systems are set to literally roll off those logs in a day, sometimes even a week. Ideally, you'd have those logs at least two weeks and maybe even up to 30 days. And I would say, do as much logging as you can possibly afford to do. Uh, because when we get in and are involved, you might wanna know right away the kinds of information, Jen, that you were talking about that's sensitive. Personal identifying information, trade secret information, health information, and whether or not it left your business. And those event logs, uh, and those kind of logs can be one of the first things we can look at very, very quickly and see if information has left the company.
1: And I would say, too, (laughs) that point, I just want to bring to that point, I would say that's really a hot topic issue that I deal with with breaches all the time. And unfortunately, you know, before forensics gets in, oftentimes systems are, you know, restarted and logs are erased or they roll off the system. And we end up with a forensic report that basically says we don't know exactly what happened because we don't have evidence to... Prove anything or really to disprove anything, so what happens in um, a lot of cases, not just the healthcare industry, is that you end up having to do a breach report which is really over inclusive because the lack of logging. so I can't emphasize um, that piece of advice enough
2: and I, and I would add on our standard reports, we often have to say based on the evidence we reviewed, we didn't see signs of for example, exfiltration. Um, it's very hard to be 100% sure when you don't have all the evidence in front of you that could be there, and it just pays dividends down the road. You know, when you're not having a breach, all that logging and all that data may not seem necessary, but believe me, if something happens, you will absolutely want access to as much of it as you possibly can.
1: Could not agree more. Any other tips?
2: Um, as a final point on on this part for knowing your network environment. Um, Don't just know your environment, but consider what other businesses or entities might have access to your network and do a check on those. Do they have more authorization than they should have? Do they have more credentials than they should have? You may have a vendor and you've created multiple accounts for people who've worked with that vendor over the years. You may need to clear out those old accounts as well. So it's not just your security you have to pay attention to, but also the security of the people you do business with regularly who have some level of access to your network.
1: That makes sense so going on to the next one you know one of the things that a lot of our clients have is cyber insurance and it you know varies in different types of uh, policies and coverage but you know what are your thoughts on cyber insurance
2: this is a really interesting topic uh, being a prosecutor who's worked in the areas of investigating and prosecuting cyber crime for for many years now I remember a time not that many years ago when having cyber insurance was a very rare thing. And now it's coming to a point where more often than not, uh, we find our clients do have cyber insurance, but periodically some still come through and and don't. And what I would say is this, is breaches are incredibly expensive in terms of time, money, and labor to not only remediate, to address legal concerns, uh, to address shareholder concerns, to pay for incident response, it's incredibly expensive and you can easily get not only in the tens, but hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and certainly for a lot of businesses already struggling right now with the pandemic and the stresses put on them from that, uh, to have one of these incident responses and not have insurance could be devastating. Um, So absolutely you'd want to do it and I guess one of the good news in terms of getting insurance is you'll have to make some network map You're gonna have to do some updating uh, in order to get a policy anyway So in a way it really forces some level of internal assessment um, of your network and your vulnerabilities And so I think it pays dividends in, in both ways
1: That makes sense I mean, one of the biggest things that I see with clients is that they, you know, they have a breach, they reach out to the cyber insurance, and then they don't know who they can use on their panel, whether that is a forensic firm, a PR firm, you know, a law firm. And so I always recommend to all the clients that I work with in advance is really to, you know, not only do your incident response plan, which we'll talk about, but make sure that you get all your preferred vendors on your plan. You want, when you're in a moment of crisis, you want to work with the people that you work with every day that know your business, that know your individuals, um, et cetera. So do you have any thoughts about that as well?
2: Absolutely. Uh, When we get called in for an incident response, um, oftentimes we're learning from the ground. From the very first call, we're assessing the network, assessing where there might be holes, vulnerabilities, assessing sources of evidence figuring out who we need to work with, maybe where the most valuable information is. But I can tell you that goes much, much faster if we have a pre-existing relationship. Um, And so I would really suggest getting some kind of incident response firm on Retainer. What that will do is allow them to get to know you and your system. And with periodic check-ins, you know, in best case scenario, you don't have to use them. But if you do, you will save an unbelievable amount of time and stress because you're reaching out to someone who already knows your network, your system, your vulnerabilities, your assets, instead of having to teach that to them upfront. And I can say from working with so many clients in the middle of a breach, it's incredibly stressful. And so the amount of time you can save, the amount of assurance you'll get from knowing that you're working with someone who knows your business, knows your systems, uh, will definitely pay for itself.
1: Yeah frankly I mean all the studies that have come out they say the best ROI to reduce you know data breach costs is really to make sure that you have defined your incident response team and that's in your internal team and it's your external team as well it's also making sure you have an incident response plan and that you practice that through things called tabletop exercises and you know i've been doing this for about 20 years and and i'll tell you that is where i see clients perform the best perform the quickest have the least stress is to just do some of that due diligence on the front end
2: and jen you make a really good point on that because besides providing those other advisory services and penetration testing you get to know the team that you'd be working with, um, not only from the incident response firm, but from the incident response firm back to that internal team. Uh, oftentimes when a breach happens, not only is the business concerned, but people who are, might be responsible or take ownership for controlling the network and the endpoints, there's gonna be a high level of stress there, right? Did I do something wrong? Did we miss something? You know, What did I do? And that can create some friction unintentionally between an incident response team and an internal team. And so getting to know each other from the beginning and maybe kind of strengthening those bonds makes things go much, much smoother. When you have to work so closely together, uh, oftentimes I will go from meeting someone at 9 p.m. at night to a week later feeling like, you know, I'm I'm good friends with them for a long time because we've been on the phone and communicating so very much over that last week. So it it really helps to get that relationship up front. As opposed to developing it then.
1: Yes, most definitely. I mean, we're we're definitely incident responders during high stress, and, and I will say on that point, what I've seen the most through tabletop exercises, it really helps an organization and the individuals that are on the incident response team really understand what their role is. So, if you practice through you know mock exercises, it's really helpful for companies to sit down and say, okay, in this instance. Who needs that upper level approval? Do I wanna be involved? Who do I need to go to before we sign off and make any sort of public statement? Who all needs to be in the loop? And oftentimes, you know, what's what's most helpful is it allows the incident response team leader to really take that lead and others that may have higher positions, shall we say, kind of follow under that incident response leader um, unless you're going to public notification. And it's just so important when things are flying all over the place, potentially you get have outside exposure because you've been on you know Krebs, you know, you've been outed to the public that you have this breach is is really practicing and understanding each team member's role in order to get out and get an accurate notification out because you're under a lot of pressure with timing to get the notification out. But we know from studies that if you go out too soon without understanding what actually went on, it costs you more money because you're making public disclosures potentially about things that you don't even have an understanding of internally. So uh, for all of those reasons, I definitely cannot rem- recommend more um, than practicing. So I, I think what would be helpful really in the end, because for those of you that have not suffered a large-scale breach, is really to kind of understand how the process works uh, and give you a little bit of background. Normally, it's the in-house you know, IT team and attorneys either find um, the breach themselves or are notified by a third-party vendor it takes some time to get your feet under you to try to figure out exactly what is going on here. Then I often get called as outside counsel to try to enhance attorney-client privilege over the investigation and really act as a data breach coach. And they ask... Well, what do we do next? And really the first, the number one first thing is, do you have a forensic firm? Because I always recommend using an outside forensic firm unless you're able to contain that breach yourself and it's minor. And why? Well, if you don't contain it yourself, which happens all the time and the attacker is still in your system, few months down the road, it it does not look very well, in other words, to the public or regulators that you handled it yourself, you didn't do a good job, and the attacker remained in the system. It's just never a good story. So I always recommend at least reaching out to a forensic firm to get their thoughts. Uh, And we hire the forensic firms under attorney-client privilege. We work through those agreements. And then I'll turn it over to you now, Brian, like once I contact you, really, what are the next steps on your side?
2: Really, what we want to establish up front is a very close relationship uh, between ourselves and the legal team, uh, because there's so many decisions that need to be made during an incident response, and some will fall directly on the legal team, some may more fall on the incident response team, but often there's a lot of in-between decisions that I think really benefit from both the experience of an incident response team, uh, as well as the legal knowledge and experience uh, from the legal team. Uh, So there's a variety of things that we would collaborate on um, in in working on a case. Uh, First, you know, the first and foremost thing that almost everyone asks is, did they take anything? And if so, what did they take? And as we've been mentioning, you know, all the time leading up to this, depending on the information that's taken, you may have reporting requirements, uh, for example, for personal identifying information or health information or credit information. But you also may have different requirements, for example, to shareholders if you've lost company assets. For example, if trade secret information has been taken, you may have regulatory filings that need to be made. And trying to figure out what that information is, what level of proof we have about that information that was taken, and what we can say about that information is often going to weigh very heavily in the decision of whether to report and what to report. And even beyond that, there's often questions at some point in these, should we notify, for example, law enforcement or the FBI? If we do notify them, what should we say? And and how do we phrase these things? And that can be very daunting for someone who's never been involved um, in the criminal system, let alone let's say the regulatory system, Um, And certainly having legal counsel working with an incident response team who often has the same level of experience that, for example, some of the FBI technicians may have who work on that in those investigations is going to be really helpful to help you figure those things out. You're also going to have to do a risk assessment uh, when it comes to prioritizing the order of remediation and rebuilding. Um, Oftentimes, we're on parallel tracks, so there's one track which is let's try to stand up the company's systems as soon as possible and get them operational and that's incredibly important for the business you can't afford to be down for a week or two weeks while you figure this out you need to be basically building the plane while you're flying it but at the same time we have to preserve evidence in a way that's forensically sound uh, we number one want to make sure that the statements we give are completely accurate and completely backed up but on the other hand we also want to make sure that we're not missing anything The worst thing that could happen is that we're rebuilding the environment, we don't know about some factors out there, There either machines that are missing, um, things that are connected to the network and somehow that's turned back on later and there's still command and control servers that still can reach out on the system, that there's malware present that we didn't find and eliminate. Uh, So you really want to make sure uh, that when you're rebuilding your systems, you're doing it forensically sound, number one, and also so it's clean and it's safe. Um, so oftentimes we'll start out with, and this is a conversation often I often have with counsel, is to talk to the client figure out what is the most important thing for you to stand up right now. Uh, do you have payroll coming up? Um, is there a sale in, You know, that the company's involved with, either selling a company or purchasing another company? What are the reports that have to get involved with that? Is there a new product being released? What goes on with that? And you can just run down the list of things that may matter to the company and help them prioritize what's most important to us now, try to get that up and running as soon as possible while we work to fix the rest of the system.
1: That makes sense. I mean, just a couple of points that you brought up. Um, I get a lot of questions from from lawyers, in particular, that f- have concern over you know notifying the FBI or other law enforcement. And I think that's just a big misconception. The FBI really takes the data and and, and they do it for threat sharing purposes. But but the FBI is not going to come out to your organization and get the attacker out of your system. Obviously, if they have information that they can that they already have, they will they will. Give you that and share that, whether it's a decryption key or something else. Um, And the FBI does not share information um, with regulators about your incident. So I have a lot of clients that are just hesitant to do that and really don't understand law enforcement's involvement. I mean, really, it's you, Stroh's, or another forensic provider that really come in and help them get their systems back up. It's not the responsibility of the FBI or local law enforcement.
2: Absolutely. Although notifying law enforcement, as you noted, really pays a lot of dividends. Number one, law enforcement gathers a lot of information and they may be able to give you information that could be very helpful in standing up your system or responding. But second, when you give information to the FBI, that may also help another business, just like the FBI got information from other businesses to help you. So it's a model that really works for everybody. And as you noted, while they're not there to fix that problem, Uh, They are there to try to share information and to assist and not to report whatever happened to other regulatory agencies.
1: Yeah, one other thing that um, is getting new focus as well that I want to mention about ransomware is that you also have to be very careful if you're going to pay ransomware. So this is another common question I get from clients all the time, should I pay ransomware? I mean, well, first, the question is, can you back up on your own? Do you even need to contemplate paying ransomware? Second, if you are going to pay ransomware, we really need to do an analysis of, you know, who are you paying ransomware to? Because you may be prohibited by U.S. law from paying certain bad actors in other countries. And I think people have lost sight of um, well, I'm just going to pay for the ransomware. Um, but you actually could get yourself in a situation um, and be subject to U.S. Um, you know, legal penalties for paying you know, somebody that is on a, a list overseas of a nation state actor. So that's just a new thing that you know, we've been trying to counsel clients through. Obviously, you know, we don't recommend paying ransomware, um, but it really depends on the particular situation and whether you can back up data.
2: That's absolutely true. And that goes right back to our first point, knowing your network, having an updated map, um, having teams that know you and and know your business is so critical when it comes time um, to do that. And even the decision whether or not to communicate with a threat actor is something that is gonna be very carefully considered by both your incident response team and and legal counsel. Um, And I think people sometimes are under the misconception that once you pay, your systems are just unlocked. And while that's true in many cases, Uh, It's not true that it's a very simple process. Normally, there's a considerable amount of effort and time that still goes through rebuilding systems, even once you have the decryption key. And of course, those keys always carry the risk that there may be additional malware inside it. So literally that the cure is still going to infect you with something else, um, to to be very candid about that.
1: Yeah, no, I've seen that happen to a lot of clients. They try to restore on their own and they actually just have bombs in the restoration process that have it happen again. So, you know, one last piece I'd like to cover on this is the art of really drafting a forensic report. And I review them all the time from all different types of forensic providers. And the reason why this report is just so essential is that I advise clients all the time is that really your communications to others, um, whether that be the affected individuals themselves that had data either accessed or exfiltrated, or if you're a vendor reporting to your customers, is that you really need to base all of your communications on the forensic report and what the forensic report says. I I see a lot of clients wanting to go beyond or connecting the dots, um, et cetera. And it's just really important to convey accurate and truthful information that is derived from a forensic report so if you could talk a little bit about you know your process and developing those reports um, and maybe some of the pitfalls you've seen in the past
2: absolutely and, and whether or not to draft a report and what that report will say often comes up very early in investigation even when we don't know what we're going to find um, and it, it's always a case of trying to manage expectations by saying first we have to see what sources of evidence are available are there any gaps in those sources of evidence Um, How much can we learn about the network from logs, host-based analysis, i.e. looking at the machines or servers themselves? Um, And then really the critical part is then working with the legal team um, to make sure we're stating things in an appropriate way for that business. Uh, We always base our reports based on evidence. So if we believe that we have evidence for something, we will state that affirmatively. But so often, even in the best investigations, there are gaps. Um, Some gaps are because there's a loss of evidence. Some gaps are just because the evidence isn't that conclusive. And so you have to make statements uh, that may suggest, for example, that data may have been stolen, but you can't say much more about it. Um, or you may stay the opposite, that we don't believe in this case that data was stolen based on the following, but a caveat that it's possible that in one of those gaps of evidences, one of the sources um, wasn't as good as you'd hoped it would be, uh, that there may be something there. And as you noted before, Jen, uh, clients, for very good reasons, are often very concerned about that. They want to make as strong a statement as possible that nothing was taken or if things were taken, this is all it was, and it was no more than that. And that's something we work very, very closely with legal counsel. And usually what will happen is we will put off any versions of report or even any hard statements to the very end of the investigation when we have a good sense of things. We'll then prepare a report from our end. Uh, it'll be reviewed by myself and, you know, really get a lot of good background myself from being a former attorney and prosecutor in this area. But the next step isn't really going to the client. It's, it's going to counsel, the legal team, uh, because legal may know of other concerns that our incident response team doesn't necessarily know about. And maybe it's not even our role to play in that matter. But that elaborating a little bit on a piece of evidence that we found and what its meaning may be or backing away from something on another point may be the best strategy going forward. Again, we always say the truth, but.
1: but... But that's the part right there, I think, where the intersection between forensics and legal is so important for people to understand because it really depends on each organization. For example, um, and one of the things I would say, you know, a lot of the insurance, you know, panel experts. They're generally you know good across the board, but many of them don't have deep insight into things, for example, of HIPAA. HIPAA's rules on when you need to report for a data breach are very different than state data breach notification laws. Many healthcare institutions also um, may receive data um, that's governed under Department of Defense rules, currently 800-171. Those standards are very broad on reporting. Um, also, there could be, if you're an international organization. You could also have GDPR concerns, which have 72-hour notice. So, you know, when we work together, that that is just so critical, is to make sure that you under, you need the legal understanding of when an event or an incident actually triggers into a something that you have to notify and what laws you need to notify under. And I think that... Um, You know, when I work with a lot of clients, they don't really understand that certain events may not be reportable, you know, depending on the facts. And I really encourage organizations to not um, scream breach, you know, through email correspondence and others because oftentimes it does something does not need to be reported. And the alternative, um, you know, depending on your organization, uh, you may have to report things that wouldn't seem to be a breach. There's over reporting requirements. For example, under the DOD, if you do any type of research in that area, if something hits your information systems, you have to do notification. So I just think that that is a you know, very critical piece. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for talking with us today and your profound expertise in this area. And I wanted to leave with just one last mystery question for you, Brian. I just wanted to know, you know really, what is your favorite part of your job and why are you so good at it?
2: What I like about my current position is actually the exact same thing I liked about my last position as a prosecutor. That ultimately, although we're talking about cybercrime and affecting businesses and we're all worried about these kinds of risk management and the kind of experience judgment calls we need to make, ultimately it's a very human endeavor. And I like the most working with people on the other end of the line and knowing that we're helping them and, and being involved with them because each of them is a person they have jobs, they have roles within their company, they have families to care for, and interacting at that level makes all of this high-level talk, frankly, worthwhile, because there are days when I hear the number of acronyms being thrown about uh, about a particular network and system, and we have these high-level discussions about reporting, and it's easy to get a little lost in that, uh, but realize when you're connecting with people and, and really working with them to try to make their systems better, to make the best of a bad situation, is really what makes this worthwhile for me.
1: Yeah, and you're fantastic at that. So thank you again so much for your time today. And now I'm going to turn it uh, back over to Judy.
2: Thanks so much, Jen. My pleasure.
1: Thank you, Jennifer.
0: And thank you, Brian Russell for a great show. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program And we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley and Lardner. We appreciate you joining us.